Good morning and welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. This is Bill Vanderbush and we've got the next few minutes to spend together in the scriptures. I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to spend time looking at two separate stories that have a lot of parallels. They're almost exactly alike. And yet uh, at the end of one story, there's a statement that's made that I want to camp out on for a little while. Uh, One thing I do want to tell you about that's really really exciting, really important. In January, on January 16th, actually, I'm beginning a personal discipleship group. It's going to be limited to 100 people, and we're just calling it Come to the Table. And uh, it centers around the theme of the Christic Covenant, or the New Covenant, and the topic of uh, what's called in theology is theosis. And theosis has been described as where Incrementally throughout the course of time, you allow the Holy Spirit to shape and form you into the image of Christ so that we become by grace what God is by nature. That doesn't mean that you and I become God, but the Bible tells us that we are partakers of his divine nature and how we learn to walk in that, even in the most difficult seasons of life is having Christ be formed in us. That's the theosis of the Christic covenant. Learning to live a life of Christic union or union with Christ is so vital and so important. So we're gonna begin a discipleship class, a program where we're going to um, do a little bit of teaching on Tuesday nights. And so uh, on Tuesday nights at seven, you'll be able to get on, listen to a little bit of teaching, and then we're going to take some questions and have a discussion and talk through what we're learning. And we're all basically going to be learning together. You're going to learn right along with me. And we're going to visit some places in the scripture that are often overlooked and often ignored because they're so mysterious and so wonderful when it comes to the ramifications of the finished work of the cross and what Jesus actually accomplished. If you get in on it a little bit late, that's okay. No worries. You're not going to miss anything because we're going to repeat a lot. All right. So this will be a great time to also network with other people who are just hungering for more of an understanding of what it means to live in reconciled rest in the heart of the Father and to to know a, a revelation of union with Christ where there's no distance and no separation between you and God because of what Jesus has done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, if that is of interest to you and you would like to sign up for the table, and again, there's only 100 slots available, and many of them are already gone, so this is going quick, uh, you're going to need to go to BillVanderbush.com, and on the home page of BillVanderbush.com, there will be an option that says, Come to the Table. Click that link, and it will take you to a form that's how you get involved. All right. Now, hopefully I've given you plenty of time. You're in 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'm going to read portions of two stories here because there's a lot to read, and it would take me probably 30 minutes to read it all if I did the whole thing. So let me just read a few portions here out of 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. It says, Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel <coughs> excuse me, and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. 
Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. So I want you to stop for a second and think about this concept. Saul is the chosen king of Israel, chosen by God. Samuel uh, laid hands on him, poured oil over him, anointed him, chose him. And uh, Saul is, even though chosen and anointed by God, has squandered and not stewarded well the anointing and the grace on his life. A lot of things he's done by his own strength and his own ego and his own power and his own might. And now he's actually allowed jealousy to creep in against a young man named David, who that same prophet Samuel has also now anointed to be the next king over Israel. And this is a problem for Saul because according to the way kingship works in the world at that time, a father passes the crown on to his son. And Saul's son, Jonathan, and David had become best friends. Matter of fact, in chapter 23, uh, Jonathan, in a sense, prophesied to David, said, listen, you are going to be the next king, and I will be by your side. In other words, I will support you in ruling and reigning in what rightfully should be my inherited seat. But Jonathan, thankfully, regarded the word of the Lord. And so he knew that David indeed was going to be the next king over Israel. And he blessed that. But Saul, in his jealousy and in his rage, was pursuing David. And pursuing David for the purpose of killing him and wiping him out. He saw David as a threat, and he didn't regard the word of the Lord. The same word that had told him he would be king without any cause. He didn't deserve any of it except that he just looked apart and was head and shoulders above everybody else. And yet now the same word of the Lord has told David he's going to be king. Jonathan believes it. Saul would rather kill David than obey the word of the Lord. And that's what we have here. You see Saul grabbing thousands of, of soldiers and heading off to go find David basically for the purpose of assassinating him. They come to a cave, and Saul goes in to use the restroom, and now he's within earshot of David. And so listen to what David's men say. And this is in the middle of verse 3. So David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. Okay, so the word of the Lord had come to David. I'm going to give your enemy into your hand. But what does that mean? God goes on to say, prophetically, you're going to do what seems good to you. And so what God is going to do is he's going to do one part of this thing, and that is he's going to provide an opportunity for David's enemies to be within reach. And then God says, you're going to do what seems good to you. Now, when an enemy is within reach, most of the time you think, I'm, I'm going to defeat, destroy, take them out, that kind of thing. Especially if you think of military enemies. But in this moment, what does it mean for David to have his enemy at hand? What David simply wants to do is he wants to put the train back on the tracks. 
See, he knows that Saul is supposed to be king of Israel. As a matter of fact, he's going to say, not just in chapter 24, but in chapter 25, 26, that Saul is anointed by God. And David has no intention of touching the Lord's anointed. David genuinely believes Saul is supposed to be king. Saul doesn't believe David's supposed to be king. So there's a disconnect between these two people. And in this moment now, David, rather than destroying Saul, even though he's, he's walking completely contrary to the word of the Lord, trying to destroy the word of the Lord by destroying David, David could fulfill the word of the Lord by destroying Saul, but David refuses to do it. What seems good to David when his enemy is within reach is simply to go and cut a piece of his robe. How close did he have to be to cut a piece of his robe? And now Saul leaves the cave, cave and David, in verse 8, says, arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord the king. Saul looked behind him, and David bowed down with his face to the ground. Now think, think of that. Look at the honor that David is giving in this moment. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? And here's the source of the problem. Saul had surrounded himself with counsel that actually sowed division by creating in Saul's mind an intention or a motivation that David had that David didn't actually have. Listen, you know, you can't see somebody else's heart unless they tell you what's going on in it. And assuming people's motives is probably one of the greatest ways to destroy a relationship. And we try to figure out why a person did what they did, and we don't believe that they have our best interest at heart, or we don't believe they actually love us, then what ends up happening is we start assigning a negative motive. Next thing you know, we're assuming a negative heart. Next thing you know, that person's an enemy, not to be won, but to be destroyed. David can see that Saul's motive is for evil. And David's posture, though, is to turn a blind eye to an evil motive and actually seek through the actions of grace to somehow turn Saul's attention back to the call on his life. And so David calls after Saul and bows down to the ground after Saul gets done using the bathroom in this cave. Take a look. It says, why do you listen again to the words of men saying, behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, this day your eyes have seen the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave. Some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. No one perceived there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you. Though you are lying in wait for my life to take it, may the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the prophet of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? 
a single flea? The Lord therefore judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now, ironically, many years later, long after Saul is dead and David is sitting on the throne, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is going to come before the king after King David says, is there any descendant of Saul that I can show kindness and favor to? And when Mephibosheth is brought before the king, the phrase he uses is the same phrase David uses with Saul here. He says, what do you want with a dead dog like me? A worthless carcass of an animal is all you see me as. Do you see how identity is so tied into uh, worthlessness when other people are seeking to pursue your demise. Other people, when when they when when you are finding yourself in a place of being opposed by good people, godly people in some instances, and and you find yourself. Uh, having enemies that you never planned on having, people that maybe even you loved and you cared about. What does it do to your identity, your sense of identity? You look at yourself through their eyes and you think, my goodness, I, I'm just nothing but a worthless carcass of an animal here in in, in their perspective, which, which is probably why they're treating me the way they're, you know, that kind of thing. And yet David knows his identity and Mephibosheth didn't. Saul was trying to destroy David. David ends up saving and blessing Mephibosheth. David lives and walks in uh, uh, at the beginning and the end of his life, his reign as a king, after he's anointed and after he becomes king. Even though he fell and even though he faced all kinds of crazy temptations and did all kinds of horrible things, he begins and he ends his life showing radical amounts of grace toward people who are standing before him who just don't know who they are. And that's exactly what Saul's facing right now. Saul has lost his identity, and he's taken an entire army out against David. And David's like, hey, listen, I'm a dead dog to you. I'm a flea to you. And when David finishes speaking here in verse 16, Saul says, is this your voice, my son David? says, you're more righteous than I. You have dealt well with me. I have dealt wickedly with you. And so... Saul repents and turns around and goes back to be king over Israel. It isn't long, however, that Saul goes back to doing this all over again in chapter 26. This time, it's almost like he's reset back to this hatred of David. And so Saul hears a word from some men who come to him and said, David's hiding out here on a hill. Saul grabs his commander of his army, Adner, and he grabs 3,000 soldiers and he heads out to go and find David. David had spies in the land and he knew that Saul was coming. And so uh, when the army makes camp, Saul and his commander are right in the middle of the camp. And David and his servant head down, sneak into the camp at night, and get right up next to Saul. And 
in that moment, David and his servant have a conversation. Servant wants to strike him dead right there. And David goes, no, 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 we're not going to do that. He takes the spear out of the ground next to Saul's head. He takes the, the water pitcher of Saul and he heads outside of the camp. And in verse 13, David crosses over to the other side, stands on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between him and the army, between them. It says, David called to the people and to Abner, saying, will you answer Abner? Abner replied, who are you who calls to the king? David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who's like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord, the king? For one of the people came to destroy your king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. And the Lord, as the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard your lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear and jug of water is that was at his head. Saul then recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. He also said, Why then is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the And listen to this part right here. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord. For they've driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Saul responds, and he's repentant, says, I've sinned. Return, David. I will not harm you again. My life was precious in your sight this day. I've played the fool and committed a serious error. And then David goes on to give the spear back. He gives his stuff back to the king. David begins initially by taunting the commander of the army and uh, the military that's surrounding Saul, saying, you know, you guys did a terrible job. You all just slept this thing through, and I was able to walk right up to your king's head, take his spear and his water jug like you guys ought to get fired in the most brutal way possible. And then David goes on to make a statement that I want you to see and I want you to rest in for a second here. See, David wants Saul to stop and think about where his animosity is coming from. He says, has the Lord stirred you up against me? See, if God stirs somebody to confront you, then, hey, there's something that's probably needing to to be dealt with in your life. And in this case, David responds and says, if the Lord has stirred you against me, then let me make an offering. What is an offering? An offering is where you give something of yours. And part of the sacrifice, the self-sacrificing an offering to the Lord is any area of our life that needs to be laid on the altar. If there's bitterness, unforgiveness, rebellion, anything in our heart that needs to be laid on the altar, that has altered our perception 
of people made in the image and likeness of God, we've got to let it go. And we've got to turn our hearts back to the grace of the Lord. And in this case, David's like, listen, if there's anything I need to do to put myself in a posture of sacrifice before the Lord to heal this, I'll do it. And that's the fix here. Sometimes you get conflict between people and you go, is this God or is this people? Is God stirring this conflict? If it is, sacrifice for one another will often be the thing that invites us to a place of union again. But then David goes on to say, and he knows this is the case, says, the Lord stirred up against me, let him accept an offering. If it is men, then cursed are they before the Lord. Now, one thing that happens quite regularly in the body of Christ, and I see it online all the time, is people sowing division against one another. Somebody will get online and say, ah, you know, so-and-so fell, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that. And somebody else will go, I knew it. I always had a check in my spirit about that person. Or, and they'll chime in, in a sense, throwing them under the bus even further, as if collectively we just choose to reject somebody. I think of David's own life and ministry and how that might play out today if David were alive. I'm not sure David would survive Western Christianity in this day that we live in. I think David would probably be canceled and he would probably be uh, never allowed to preach again. Uh, I think he would probably lose all of his influence. But the reality is, is even anointed people sometimes get it wrong. And when they get it wrong and you begin to see the sacrifice from their heart to be committed to the word of the Lord in their life, and to show grace to the people that are around them. I mean, that's what Jesus said. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you, and do good to those who mistreat you. That requires sacrifice. To love, bless, pray for people that are against you requires a sacrifice. Because it feels so good to defend yourself. But don't get drawn into defense. David, though, he understands where this division is coming from. It's not coming from God. It's coming from people. You know, one of the words names for the devil is the accuser, the accuser. And where we get this word is the Greek word kategoros. It means to categorize. We're going to take and apply a name to somebody and devalue them on the basis of that new identity that we've just given them. To be an accuser of the brethren is the very nature of who the devil is. And God is and in Christ, you see this revealed, he is our glory and the lifter of our head. He heals the broken heart. He sets captives free. He gives sight to the blind and raises the dead, lists the poor from the ash heap. And David understands where the conflict is coming from. And you know, it doesn't matter how many times Saul comes after David, David continually shows grace, grace to Saul. Why? Because Saul carries an anointing of God to walk in what he's walking in. He may not be doing it well. He may not be doing it perfectly, but he's anointed to do something. And at any moment, he could start to do it right. And until such a time that the Lord calls him home, David realizes it's not to me to put an end to Saul's reign. It's up to me to continually encourage Saul to go back to the call on his life and do what you're called to do.
And David goes straight to the heart of the matter. He recognizes, hey, this division between you and me and this obsession with, with you being against me has to do with what people are saying to you. And listen, if you're surrounded by people who are speaking words to you that are actually taking your joy and your peace, causing you to question the anointing on a person's life, causing you to carry bitterness and animosity and hatred for somebody, and causing you to actually partner with the accuser of the brethren, this is a moment to go back to the Lord and say, no, 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 you, you prayed, Jesus, you prayed in John 17 that we would be one. And that that oneness would be reflective of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an other-centered, self-giving relationship of love. Interesting thing is, when you carry unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart towards someone else, often it becomes very easy to mistake the voice of the accuser for the voice of God. Because when somebody that you're angry and bitter and 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 unforgiving against comes to your mind, the voice of the Lord that says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who despitefully use you is not typically the voice that we turn an ear to. It's almost like in that moment, we need God to be a judge. And so we look for the voice of someone who's going to be as judgmental as we feel. And that voice of judgment often is the voice of the accuser, not the voice of or the word of the Lord. And I would say to you today, maybe you're in the position like with David, where you go, you know, I recognize that there's conflict. I recognize there's division. But today, right now, I'm choosing to give grace, to encourage someone to step back into the destiny that God has on their life and not be derailed by division or drawn into defensiveness. But to find that place, the secret place in the heart of the Father where grace begins to flow once again like a river, that can bring union and unity again. It all really begins with turning our gaze, turning our fixation of our eyes, our focus back on Jesus and letting him heal our heart. Take out that root of bitterness in you. Remove the unforgiveness from you so that you can walk in peace. As much as possible, the Bible says, walk in peace with all men and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Jesus is the holiness that we walk in to see the face of God clearly. And nothing seems to obscure the face of the Lord more than unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment in the heart. You know, so much of this Christian life is learning to let go. And the ability to let go and put things into the hands of the Lord doesn't mean that we deny the circumstances that are happening in our life. It simply means we deny those circumstances the right to dictate how we respond. It's not the circumstances that control me. I'm going to be a person that walks in love no matter what. And that's what I want you to say from your heart, that it's not the circumstances that control me. I'm going to be a person that walks in love and in grace no matter what. Listen, you defend people who need defending. But when it comes to attacks against yourself, this may be a moment where you say, you know what, I'm not even touching it. I just want to pray that that person gets back on track to where God called them to be. And I'm going to do everything I can to ensure that happens, even if the Lord delivers them into my hand. Sometimes that deliverance into your hand might seem like the voice and the word of the Lord coming through you toward them. Maybe they won't hear it right now, but there comes a point in time where they give you a call. And and when they reach out to you, now you have a voice to speak into their life. 
And so you speak the truth in love and watch how the evidence of that grace begins to flow through the words that you speak, the sound that you release. This is especially going to be important this year as we have an election coming up. And an election year seems to be the time when the political and the religious spirit get louder than ever before. And this is a time where we need to have discernment more than ever between the voice of the accuser and the voice of the Lord. And again, if you have judgment in your heart, then you'll turn your ear to listen to the voice of the accuser. Because the voice of the accuser can sound an awful lot like the voice of the Lord when you need God to drop the hammer of judgment on somebody. And so at this time, remember that God himself, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who authored grace, who is by his very nature love, is kind, the Bible says, to even evil and ungrateful men. That's the way he, he is. That's what he's like. He's the father who never gives up on his prodigal sons and daughters. And so let's be that. Let's find that place in our heart to never give up in extending grace and extending a revelation of the goodness of the father's heart toward people, no matter where they are in life, so that we keep the door of invitation open consistently for people to come back and receive the full reward of the spirit of adoption provided for in Jesus Christ on the cross. Hey, thanks so much for listening today. I pray this has been an inspiration and blessing to you, perhaps even a challenge to you. And I pray that your relationships around you will continue to grow stronger as God draws the body of Christ together into that place of union and unity so that we can be an expression of the Father's heart and the prayer of Jesus from John 17 who prayed, Father, the glory that you've given me, I give to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and you, you and me and I and them perfected in unity that the world may know that you sent me and loved them just like you love me. You can write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Go to Bill Vanderbush to listen to this podcast again. And to support the ministry, go to VanderbushMinistries.com and click on the Give button. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.